Now, God, we thank you this morning. We thank you that you were good. God, we thank you for your presence here and your presence uh, in our lives. Uh, God, we thank you that you are for us and you are not against us. God, we thank you how your power works out in our lives. And, uh, and God, we pray that you might uh, continue to speak to us for the rest of the service. Your blessing would be upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we have been working through a series for the last little while uh, called You Asked For It. And basically, uh, these topics have all been uh, requested by all of you. So we've uh, touched on a number of things. Uh, so far today, we are going to touch on the topic of our blessed hope. And, and this is the question specifically. Uh, the question is this. Is it possible to talk on the essential meaning of the term blessed hope or blessed if you more traditional background blessed hope without going too deep into eschatology and that fancy word just means uh, the study of the last things or end times and the millennium and the end times uh, perhaps give us a little peek into what the bible says might be coming so that's uh, so what we're going to do we'll talk very briefly on some issues of the millennium and end times and then talk more on the idea of uh, jesus being our Blessed, blessed hope. And that term actually comes from Titus 2.13. It says this, we wait for the blessed hope or the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this hope that we have is not a cursed hope. It's not a meaningless hope. It's, it's a hope that is completely blessed and amazing. And this is speaking about the return of Jesus. And notice here it says uh, that our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, the author of Titus actually uh, gives Jesus the label of God. And there are some, if you're out in the sort of Lala internet theology land, who will say, you know, the idea of Jesus' divinity or Jesus being God wasn't, uh, um, wasn't until, you know, the Council of Nicaea or was invented later by the church. But here we have very early authors stating that Jesus is God, and we have lots of quotes from early church fathers way before the Council of Nicaea talking about Jesus Christ as God, but Jesus being our great God and Savior. And so the blessed hope is the appearing of, of Jesus at his second, second coming. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is returning again. Um, just as Jesus came once as a baby in Bethlehem, uh, the Bible speaks about a second coming of Jesus. The angels, after Jesus ascended into heaven, said, said this in Acts chapter 1. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Or Christ, uh, in Hebrews chapter 9, it says, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so this idea of the second coming of Jesus, that there is a time when Jesus is going to come, come again. The question is, that everybody always asks, is, is when is he returning? Uh, when is Jesus coming back? And this is where this topic, as the question noted, uh, about the millennial uh, plays into, uh, t uh, com comes into, into, into play. Because different views would say, 
Jesus is coming at a different time, depending on their, their schematic of how the end times rolls out. And a lot of it actually has to do with what is known as the millennium, which basically means a thousand years. Thousand years, and the Bible speaks about this this idea of a thousand years in Revelation, and this is where this idea of the millennial comes in. It comes from this passage primarily. It says, "Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, with a key to the bottomless pit, and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years." The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. And so it speaks of sort of this thousand years where Satan somehow is bound until the thousand years is finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones of people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus. That's those who were persecuted and died for their faith. For proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their foreheads or their hands. And, and by the way, this idea that somehow someone's going to place a microchip in your forehead or hand, um, I highly doubt that's what it's talking about. If you study that through the scripture, the idea of a forehead and hand really has to do with your allegiance. Uh, the Old Testament speaks about you know, taking the word of God and, and place it on your forehead and, and on, your, on your hand or your wrist. And the idea is this is your allegiance. It's not speaking about some sort of microchip or something like that. Uh, they all came to life again and they uh, reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So again, this idea of this thousand years. For them, the second death holds no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. And so Revelation which is a very highly symbolic and very figurative book, speaks about this thousand years. And so um, there are all kinds of theories about the return of Christ in relation to this thousand-year reign. And I um, just want to really briefly go over some of the different theories because, as I say a lot here, there are some things we as Christians agree on, but there's a lot of things we don't agree on. In fact, you could take most theological topics and you could sit around a big table <laughs> with people from all of church history and people from different flavors of Christianity today. And you can pretty much put any, any topic on the table and you have lots of different opinions. And this is one of them. Lots of different opinions on how the return of Jesus works and when that timing is. And here's just some of them. And we'll see why the millennium is important. The first one is called post-tribulation premillennialism, or similarly would be called historic premillennialism. And uh, the reason sometimes it's called historic premillennialism, is that this was actually the standard view, for most part, of the first 300 years of church history. This was how they saw the return of Jesus, and that is, there's the cross, and then here's sort of the time period we're living in, that uh, they would think that they were living in the tribulation, or there was a coming tribulation, and at some point, Jesus would come back, and he would bring in what is known as the millennium. So Christ would return after this period of tribulation, whether that was a set time or just general church history. Christ would return, Satan would be bound, and then he would kind of reign on this earth for a thousand years. And after those thousand years, then everything would be kind of wrapped up in the last judgment, and there would be the new heavens and the new earth. Another view, which is more modern in history, which came about sort of more in the late 1800s, 
Uh, it's called the pre-tribulation or the dispensational premillennialism, if you want a fancy word. Um, this view uh, was very, actually very popular, in, especially in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And this is where the idea of the Left Behind series or the idea of our, our rapture came into play, where Jesus dies on the cross, and then at some point in history, there's going to be sort of a secret coming of Jesus where um, Jesus takes up all the Christians up into heaven. There's a secret rapture, and all the people who don't love Jesus are kind of left behind, and then God pours out all kinds of angry wrath upon these people uh, for seven years, and then Jesus comes again with the church, and then there's this thousand-year period, and then the judgment, and then kind of the new heavens and the new earth. Um, this view is becoming less and less popular. But it's still, it's still out there, this idea of the rapture of the church and a seven-year tribulation and a period of, of, of uh, a thousand-year reign. Uh, another view is called post-millennialism. And this is this view that Jesus dies on the cross. And eventually through church history and through us as Christians loving people and loving the world, that the world will become better and better. And in essence, our love for people and love for this world and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit will bring in a thousand-year reign of Christ where things will be more or less defined by God's love. And then after this thousand-year reign, then Christ will return again after the thousand years, whether you take that thousand years to be literal or not. And this view was actually has been fairly unpopular, but has been popular throughout history, but it is gained, gaining some traction again. Um, and the reason why it was unpopular, it was very unpopular around like First World War, Second World War, because the earth was falling apart, and how could we ever think the world is getting better, it's just getting worse. But we know now that there's actually a lot of um, things in this world that are getting better. There are some things that are getting worse, but there are lots of things in this world that are getting better. I mean, there's far less hunger, there's far less poverty, uh, there's more, more people are educated, there's far, the life expectancy for most people is higher. And you can go on, there's a lot of things, crime rates are down, murder is down. I mean, there's a lot of things in this world that are actually getting better. And so this view of we as Christians through our love of the world and love of people bringing in this kind of reign of Christ where the world is defined by his love is maybe more of a possibility. But that's another view. Another view, which is quite popular, is um, amillennialism or amillennialism. And this would take that thousand-year reign of Jesus where Satan is bound and would see it as symbolic of basically all of church history. And the idea is that when Jesus dies on the cross, Satan is bound in a sense that he has no more power over sin, over death. Uh, Christ bound Satan on the cross. And so we are living in this, this idea of this, this figurative thousand-year reign where Christ is ruling through his church. And so that is, and then Christ would come at some point for the second coming in, in the last judgment. And so there's some, some of the views within Christianity. And then there's this other view. Uh, if you don't want to be another, you can be a pan-millennialist. You know, it's all just going to pan out. Some people suppose. <laughs> about when is Jesus returning? Well, uh, do we have a date for, for his return? Well, it, it doesn't take long. If you look on the internet, uh, I guess this is the date, someone says. Uh, April, March 2022. So be ready. <laughs> Rapture's coming sometime that, uh, between that. Um, there, there have, there, I mean, literally hundreds and hundreds of dates have been given for the return of Jesus. In fact, there's a cool little Wikipedia page you can go to, and, and a lot of them are listed, and you realize how foolish it is to try to come up with dates because everybody's been wrong. 
But maybe because there's so many doubts out there that someone's just going to happen to be lucky and get the right date somewhere along the line. But I mean, this started way at the very beginning. One of the early church fathers suggested 500 AD. Uh, Jonathan Edwards thought 2000 AD. Um, lots of books have been written. I mean, this guy thought the rapture might happen in 1988, but of course, that date is long gone. Uh, October 28, 1992 was a, was a big date that was presented for the return of Jesus. Uh, Harold Camping was famous for this date back in 2011, May 21st. This was a huge thing, but Jesus didn't come back on that date. Uh, you remember Y2K? Yeah, return of Jesus or the end of the Mayan calendar, the return of Jesus. We're still here. Jesus hasn't come back. Um, and of course... The whole blood moon thing that was going around for a long time. It's still going around. That, you know, uh, the date of September 28, 2015 was the big date because of the blood moons. And Jesus returning on that date didn't happen. So now they've kind of moved it ahead to this whole blood moon theory of sometime in March or April of 2022. But most likely, it'll be just another date that's gone in history. Um, the reality is, I mean, Jesus said no one knows in Mark 13. But about the day or hour, no one knows. I'm not sure why some people think they can be smarter than Jesus, but uh, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. He says this, however, you don't know, uh, do not know when that time will come. It is like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not, not know when the owner of the house will come back whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find, uh, him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. And so we are to watch and we are to be ready, but we don't know the day or the hour. And so lots of dates out there, but uh, we do not know. In fact, uh, a lot of people suppose, and I kind of lean this way too, that the date of Christ's return may actually be flexible. It's not some date that was set in foundation at the beginning of the world, but as God works and interacts with his people, that the date may actually be flexible. I mean, Second Peter says this about the return of Jesus. Uh, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so there's this idea that Jesus is not coming back yet because he's very patient and loving. And he's waiting for more people to be in relationship with him. And, and, and because of this, it may be that the date actually may be flexible. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as to look forward to the day of God and speed is coming, which is a really weird phrase. Uh, somehow, <laughs> Peter's saying, like, there's a part of us that we can speed his coming. Maybe similar to what Jesus said, that we to pray, your kingdom come. That perhaps we play a role in the date and perhaps what is going on, that the date may not be fixed, that it, it could be flexible. Some think that, some think it's a fixed date, but again, we do not know the day or the hour. So that's some background and some of the theories. But let's focus in on this hope we have. Uh, we wait for the blessed hope, for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. This hope of Christ's return 
is to be something that we look forward to. Uh, it is something that, when we think about, should give us excitement. It is something that, that is blessed. <laughs> that there is no curse in this hope. It is a blessed hope. Now, why is the return of Jesus something that we hope for? Well, Romans 8 is actually quite closely kind of a, almost a commentary on this verse in Titus. It's an expansion. Some of the same words are found in this verse of why we hope this. And Romans 8 says this. What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Just think about that. The things that we suffer now, it is nothing compared to the thing, the glory that we will receive later. Now, how can you call the sufferings that we go through now nothing? I mean, just think of some of the things that you've had to suffer through. I think of things like I know concentration camps. You think about the abuse of children, uh, just some of the unloving things that happen in this world and, and how deep and horrible and awful some of that suffering is. But this text says that suffering is nothing compared to the glory that is coming. Amen. Which means that glory is pretty darn amazing. <laughs> that is so amazing that you can look back on this and say that that was just nothing compared to how good this shall be, which means that this glory has got to be way more than we can ever imagine or hope for. Now, you can dream the biggest dream about what glory is going to be like, and it's going to surpass it. It's going to be more amazing and more beautiful. I mean, it's like the idea of a woman giving birth and, and all that pain, how, how that pain disappears when that mom gets to look at that child. In the same way, there, there, is, there are such hard and, and difficult things in this world. But the glory coming makes that look like nothing. And so this is why this becomes a hope for us because of this time when the, when the suffering will be gone. For all creation, it's not just us who should be waiting, but all of creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against his will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, and this is the idea of the blessed hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it'll join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. It's like Jesus talked about the rocks crying out. We have the rocks and the trees and the mountains and the sea and the land also looking forward to this day when it's liberated from destruction and decay and earthquakes and things that cause suffering and horribleness. And, and it becomes a hope, not just for us, but for also for creation. We know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. And we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. And so uh, this idea of the Holy Spirit, is, it's only a foretaste of the future glory. I mean, you can think about moments where you've had in the presence of God. Where the presence of God is so thick and strong that you just sense God's presence and maybe you just feel his love washing over you. Maybe you've been a privilege to be able to pray for somebody and all of a sudden their sickness disappears or you pray for them and their emotional struggles are gone or there's this healing and transformation and all that stuff, which is just, it is incredible. That's just a foretaste of what is coming. 
And when someone is healed, it's a foretaste of how one day every single person is going to be perfectly healthy. When something amazing happens in this world and we sense the presence of God, that is just a little taste of what is to come. It's like this grand banquet of food and ice cream and all the yummy things are there. And someone just gives you a little drop of what that banquet's going to be like. And that, that's what the, the Holy Spirit is, just a foretaste of this coming reality. And so it becomes a hope that one day, as it talks about here, that our bodies are going to be released from sin and suffering, that there will be no crying or death or pain, no more aches in our bodies, no more things that we're allergic to, and we can't eat all the good food because we're allergic to it or whatever it might be, uh, that we'll be released from all that. This world will be released. And so it becomes this amazing hope. And he goes on. He says, we too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us full rights as his adopted children, including new bodies he has promised us. And so not only is the earth going to be renewed, but uh, we get brand new bodies. Uh, they're going to be perfect. No more suffering, no more pain. Sin's going to be removed. I mean, just imagine having perfect relationships with people. No more conflict, no more arguments, no more I'm right, you're wrong, no, you're right, I'm wrong. I mean, it, it, like just in this beauty of God's love where everything is saturated by that. I mean, this is why this is a hope because, man, life can be a real drag, if you're honest, at times. I mean, it can be hard. Uh, but when Jesus returns, things, things are made right. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. And so this is why this is the hope of all this, this future goodness coming. We look forward to the day when everything is going to be defined. Everything in this universe will be defined by the God, uh, love of God. As Colossians says, that through him, Jesus, uh, that to, uh, he's going to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross or Ephesians chapter 1, where it talks about the unity of all things in heaven and in earth under Christ, that one day everything in this universe will be defined by the goodness and love of Christ. And just how amazing that will be. I mean, no more darkness, no more pain, no more suffering, no more evil. Hebrews says this about our blessed hope. For this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. This life here is really just like a nanosecond compared to all of eternity. And this world right now, this life right now, is not, it's not our permanent home. Our home is going to be a reality at the return of Christ. It's like we're on a camping trip. You know those camping trips you go on May long weekend where it rains? <laughs> You're like, why did I do this? I just want to go home. <laughs> I mean, this life here is kind of like a camping trip. We enjoy it. There are sunny times. We get to hang out at the beach at times, and there are good things, but there's those rain, times of rain, and times when you run out of propane, and the mosquitoes come, and that's kind of like this life, but we look forward. To, I just want to go home to my bed. <laughs> Is anybody going to my bed? And that's a picture of us. It's not our permanent home. So we look forward to the home to come where evil, suffering, pain, sorrow is all gone, and things have been made perfect. And, and this becomes a powerful hope which helps us get through depression and suffering and sorrow because realize this is not the end. This is not the end of my story. This is not the end of my life. That I have so much to come. And this hope, this idea of a blessed hope 
can be such a powerful tool in suffering. That check out what it says in Hebrews 10. It says, you endured in great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison. And then it says this, joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. The people being persecuted, thrown in prison. I mean, imagine if you came home and like someone took your house and property away. No more. No place to rent, it's gone. No home, it's gone. Said, sorry, this has been taken over. I mean, why in the world is the world joy in there? <laughs> this is what it says. They joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. How in the world could they do that? How in the world? That makes no sense. Well, it tells us. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. They knew that was not the end of the story. They knew that was just, this is the nanosecond compared to all eternity. They realized that this, they were still on a camping trip. Someone stole their tent. Okay, that's bad, but I got a home waiting for me. I mean, this is the idea. And this is why it's a hope for us. And this is why when we are struggling, and maybe today you're struggling, you realize that this is not the end of your story. This life is not the end of your story. It is a small part of your story, but it's not the end of your story. And because of this hope, our, ever, our story never, ever, ever ends on a bad note. Second uh, Peter, talking about what's coming in the future, says this, In keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and new earth, the home of the righteous. So this is our home. It's, we look forward to this idea of, of the new earth. And we've talked about that before here. Uh, but the new earth is basically this earth, but everything beautiful. Uh, that you can look at this current earth and take things that are beautiful and becomes, again, a foretaste of what is to come. So you see beauty in creation. You climb up a mountain, you just see how wonderful that is. That is a foretaste <coughs> of the new earth. Because the new earth is going to be that minus sin, evil, suffering, and darkness. Uh, we can look at our current bodies, and that gives us a foretaste of our new heavenly bodies because there may be some good aspects of our body, but everything evil, awful, bad, broken, that'll be gone. So it gives us a foretaste of what is coming. Our relationships here, when marriage is going well, when relationships are going well, that becomes a foretaste of what is coming because our future relationships, no more brokenness, uh, no more conflict. So again, everything now becomes a foretaste. That's why it's called the new earth and these new glorified bodies that be, is coming is everything we long for and hope for in this world will actually be a reality one day. Revelation puts it this way. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. Now, if you love the ocean, sorry, it's gone. No, just kidding. Uh, this book is very figurative. It, it's very uh, full of a lot of illustration. This idea of the sea to the ancient Israelites was basically like the closet in our bedrooms as a kid. I mean, they were afraid of the ocean. It's just we were as a kid afraid of the dark closet. And so this idea, there's no longer any sea, is the idea is there's, not, there's nothing to be afraid of anymore. No longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, 
They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. And then, at, uh, in the end, or, or let's keep reading, the angel showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life. And a lot of this imagery is, in a sense, the Garden of Eden reborn. I mean, the book opens with the tree of life. There is mess, 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 mess. And it closes with the tree of life. It opens with the stream. And it opens with these people walking with God. And it closes with the stream. And it closes with people walking with God. Again, as, as the perfection of the Garden of Eden, so will it be in the future. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. And then it has this phrase, no longer will there be a curse upon anything. Nothing will be cursed. Imagine gardening without a curse in your garden. <laughs> yeah, I mean, whatever it's going to mean. Uh, the curse is removed from the earth. The curse is removed from our bodies. And so, I mean, just think about uh, the technology we can develop without being cursed and our minds operate at its fullest. Imagine what we can do in this new world of music and art and poetry and with our bodies in terms of athletics in this new world that where everything is made perfect and it is to be the way it's meant to be. And we're walking with God and, and just continually digging into the never-ending depth of God and his goodness and his love and grace. I mean, this is why it's a hope. This is why this hope carries us through as Christians through when properties are confiscated and when horribleness happens and depression hits and our bank account is low that we look forward to like, this is not the end of my story here. This is not the end of my story. So never ever let your story stop in the negative. A lot of our emotions have to do with the movies we're playing out in our heart. And uh, I mean, you can take any movie. You can take The Lord of the Rings. I mean, if you stop it in the wrong spot, it'd be really depressing. But you know the end. We know the end of the movie. We know the end of the story. We don't stop our story in our current issue, in the death of a loved one, or the mental health issue I'm struggling with, or my financial issue, or my health issue. We don't stop our story there because we know that is not the end of our story. Our story always gets better. It always has a good ending. It always has an amazing ending. And so whatever movie you're playing out in your mind through your current story, make sure it doesn't stop there, but it stops where it should. As Colossians 3 says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So God, we, we just pray this into our hearts and our minds and our souls this morning. God, all of us here know that life can be hard. And there are some we may know that in deeper ways than others, but God, this, this life beats us up. And so God, I pray you would teach us to make sure that we are playing out the right story, the true story. 
that this here, this life here is not the end of our story. And my story doesn't end in my physical death here. My story doesn't end in my addiction. My story doesn't end in my depression. My story doesn't end in my joblessness. My story ends in the new heavens, in the new earth, where there is perfection, where there is no curse. So God, I pray you would saturate us in that blessed hope. And we would have hope no matter where we are today. And God, most forward, we, we just look forward to being in a perfect relationship with you. And we can just continually mind what it means to be connected to the God of this universe. And we can rest in the fullest way in your love, in your grace, in your beauty. And so God, we honor you, and we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name.